So bringing these questions that you guys asked together um, in my mind, I feel that a little bit we're just talking about generally the human experience, yeah. whether it's questions about our habitual patterns, our way of doing things again and again, or our beliefs that create those cycles to keep happening to us. Um, whether it's talking about things just like stress in our life and family, having a wandering mind, things like this. Um, this is what it means to be human, I guess we could say, simply put. Um, so when we begin this practice, when we sit down to meditate especially, often I say to people, we're not here to meditate, we're here to see why we can't meditate. Because a lot of times we'll sit down and we'll just constantly be faced with all of these things coming up in our mind, all of our worries, fears, anxieties, fantasies, just whatever, just the, the sheer wanderingness of the mind. When I was a monk in Australia, one of the brothers came up to me and he said, um, that's something that he was reflecting on, and he talked with another monk about this, is that the mind will just wander forever. It keeps going. And he said, sometimes you just have to call the mind out on its endlessness. That sometimes you really just have to say to yourself, it's enough, it's enough. You can worry forever about everything. You know, you could always be trying to make things different, always be trying to make things better. Always think that you can think things through, that you can think an answer, think a solution. Um, and it's endless. It's really this endless thing that, that life keeps going, that the mind keeps going. And if you really start watching your mind, you'll notice that it doesn't often actually find any solutions. Often the mind just keeps stirring up the same stuff again and again and again. It would be like you're sitting... Um, outside in a parking lot and you're taking your photo album from your life and throwing it down and then writing notes to yourself and drawing pictures and then other people from your life drop their pictures and then every now and then like a windstorm comes through and it just kind of stirs those things up so there's these different images and thoughts and memories and are just kind of flying past your face you know and there's really no rhyme or reason to it it just kind of keeps stirring 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 moving 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 grasping, 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 wanting some kind of control, some kind of clarity. Um, this fact that we're always trying to get control, right? So you were saying, for instance, like when you come to your breath, you start to control it, right? So this is also, if you think about people, we have a stage here, think about people that get stage fright, right? It's the same thing. It's something that they've repeated a lot of times, that they've gone through a bunch of times. But now that they're on stage, and there's all these people watching, they become super aware of all of their movements. They become super aware of everything they're doing, everything they're saying, until they become so aware of the other people that they feel frozen. They don't even actually remember what they're supposed to do. They lock up. So if we are too controlling in our life, if we're too controlling about trying to get things to be a certain way, the way that we want them to be, um, anything that we bring our attention to that control will creep in. 
So when I was starting to practice meditation, probably even for a couple years, same thing, I'd come to my breath and I'd realize that I was trying to control my breath. That I was, there was, I was like, I was trying to get peace out of my breath, right? Like I was trying to get something. I was like holding on to my breath and trying to get something out of it, trying to get peace out of it. And then one day I really saw that image that, that it's, you know, me really intensely holding on to this thing called my breath, like, give me my peace, you know? Get peaceful. And I realized that the breath isn't going to give me peace. Peace happens when I let that thing go. You know, that, that the peace isn't out there. It's, in, it's my way of relating to everything. So when you breathe, you need to relate to your breath in a peaceful way. Yeah, when you meditate, when you have thoughts, you have to relate to your thoughts in a peaceful way. So whatever comes up, you have to relate to that peacefully. Does this make sense? So if you want peace, you have to create peace. You have to be peaceful. Yeah, so if we want to have a peaceful, free mind, then whatever comes in, we have to treat that thing with a peacefulness, right? So our way of relating to things, that's kind of going to then be the quality of our experience. Does that make sense? Yeah. So what starts to happen as you're going through these things? Um, and when we talk here about spirituality, when we talk about kind of following a spiritual path, that's no different than this, right? Because we are material beings. We have this material body. Right? We eat food and we drink water and we poop it out and we have beds to lie in and we need to be warm so we have clothes and we have this carpet to sit on. So we have this physical aspect to ourselves but then we have this whole mental, emotional kind of side, which we call the spirit, the spiritual side. So it's this body is animated. There's an, this body's not a corpse lying dead on the floor, right? It's moving. So there's an animation to it, right? So people have called that the soul, the spirit, right? But it's really, if you could also just talk about it as, as the mind, that there's a mind inside of this body. So following a spiritual path in this sense, it really means starting to really become clear about what is this experience that we find ourselves in? Really moving away from thinking that this is just this material object and there's just this material world here and then that's it. You know, It's starting to open up and to really look deeper. Um, there is this, I guess he's a, he's a lecturer. I think he's also a professor, but um, Graham Hancock. And he did a lot of studies into consciousness. And he talked to a lot of people that also did different hallucinogenic substances, and he talked to different people around the world who are studying consciousness in different ways. And he said, you know, it's interesting because we have a very materialistic worldview. We think that the brain creates the mind, right? That there's this brain inside of here, and because of these electrical impulses, that's why we feel things, that's why we perceive, that's why this. He said, but how do we really know that? How do we know that instead of the brain being like a generator that's cranking and then the electricity is flowing through, that it's creating the mind. He said, how do we know it's not more like a radio that's a radio antenna that's receiving the transmission of consciousness? How do we know that the brain creates the consciousness and it's not just that the brain is able to pick up consciousness to receive it? Because there's a lot of incredibly well-documented cases of near-death experiences of out-of-body experiences, of people who remember their past lives. 
I mean, very, very, very meticulously well-documented cases from all over the world. Lots of hospitals. Lots of hospitals, lots of hospice workers. Yeah, there's two researchers um, that were doing a lot of work with, with people that remember past lives. Uh, Ian Stevenson is one of them. Yeah, and really well-documented cases of these children that just remember all these little details and they actually take the child and bring them to this place that they remember living and they meet like the, you know, the mother or the wife or whatever. And the kid's like, oh yeah, I remember when you did this and there's my bedroom and here's everything is and they know everything. Like they were there, they know everything to astonishing details, right? Or people that in the hospital room, they die and they come back and they say to the nurse, you know, you took my sandwich, you know? Or they say on the roof, there's a red shoe up there. I don't know why. Or they'll say these things that there's no way they could know and then people will go and investigate and they're like, yeah, there's a red shoe on the roof. Or the nurse thought the patient was dead, so they're like, oh, so they ate the person's sandwich because they thought they were gone. You know, so that they know these things. So there's a lot of good evidence that says that the mind is something that's beyond the material level, that it's not, that this, the brain creates the mind, that the mind is actually something beyond the brain, that it's something bigger than this place. Yeah? Um, but we don't see that often, right? We don't realize it. So we're kind of more often stuck in this mundane reality, I guess we could call it, right? So just kind of turning the crank, right? Paying taxes, right? Going, filling up in gas, doing just the day-to-day -day stuff that we have to do. You know, get going, going to work, having fights with people, getting jobs, just doing all the things to keep this level of things afloat. Yeah, but there's a lot more going on. And the way to that place, it's through using this place. And that's kind of where meditation comes in, where mindfulness comes in. Because when we sit here, we start becoming aware of what's coming up in our minds. So for instance, when I started practicing meditation and I noticed that I was trying to grasp on my breath, I was trying to get something out of it, I noticed that I'm always trying to get something. I'm always trying to get something out of something else. I'm always unsatisfied. My present moment is always unsatisfied. This is a habit. This is something that I'm always doing. This is a belief that I have in my mind that says everything right now is not okay. That right now, something's wrong. I don't know what it is, but something's wrong right now. So I'm always having to do something to make everything okay, to feel content. And it's a black hole, it's endless. Because I'm always trying, but it's a belief. Has anyone seen the movie Inception? Do you see this, right? It's like deep in our mind, we have these beliefs. And these beliefs create a, a cycle of behavior, right? At, what is it? It's like, beware of your, oh my God, someone's got to tell me this one. It's like, beware of your thoughts, they become your words. Beware of your words, they become your actions. Beware of your actions, they become your behavior. Beware of your behavior, it becomes your character. Um, beware of your character, it becomes your destiny or something like this. So it's kind of saying that starting from the place of how we think, you know, that you think something. Um, I saw a Tony Robbins documentary on Netflix, and it's called I Am Not Your Guru. It's amazing if you haven't seen it. It's really cool. And he said that he decided that he's just going to dominate any problem that comes his way. He just, and he said that to himself again and again, like a mantra, I'm going to dominate, you know. And a few days ago, I was giving a, I gave a big workshop for 150 middle school teachers, right? So it was just me and all these teachers. It's a really big process, this two-hour process that I led all these teachers. And I was kind of walking into it, and 
I wouldn't say that I was intimidated, but I'm like, There's, this is like a big thing to hold. It's like 150 teachers after school. They don't want to be there either, right? So a lot of that energy. And I said to myself, I'm going to dominate. Whatever happens, I'm going to dominate this situation. And I repeated that in my head like a mantra. And it started, I started to then get a feeling. When I kept saying, I'm going to dominate the situation, I'm going to suddenly I started to feel more confident. I started to feel a, a trust. And I wasn't anymore thinking that situation was going to overtake me. I kind of started realizing, no matter what happens, I'm going to get through this. It's going to be OK. Whatever problems come my way, I'm going to go through it, and it's going to be fine. So by creating a new thought pattern, I created a new feeling. And by creating a new feeling, I had a different kind of an energy, and I was able to relate to the situation differently and move through it. The problem is, is that often we're not aware of the beliefs that we're holding inside. So if I wasn't aware of that belief that everything's not OK, I would never have seen it clear enough to be able to let go of it and realize you know, happiness has to be found in the here and now or never for myself. But also through my time as practice, there was many little things that I had to pick apart. Um, issues like you were saying about like childhood trauma and stuff, right? I think maybe everybody has some form of childhood trauma of one way or another. You know, just because parents are imperfect, right? People are imperfect, situations are imperfect, things happen, and that really makes an impression on you. You know, and if you walk into school and everybody points and laughs at you, then you think there's something wrong with you. And you'll think, oh, OK, if I'm friendly, everyone's going to make fun of me. right? If I'm vulnerable, I'm going to get hurt. So if you think every time you're vulnerable, you're going to get hurt, you start putting up walls. right? You start putting yourself a little bit back. You, know, you, you get back. But then also you'll feel very lonely, because you've built this kind of fort around the castle, around yourself. right? So nobody can really get in. And you feel safe, but you feel lonely. So you want people to come in, but they don't because everyone feels it. But what's going to happen is that there's some people, like for instance, they say like emotional or sexual predators, people like this, right? When they feel people with those walls, they know, ah, there's somebody back there that's actually really unsure of themselves. So those are the people that they look for. They're like, oh, I feel a really big wall. I could, that's somebody that's probably really, you know, they can feel that. They feed off of that energy. So they'll go through your wall, and you're so happy that somebody's inside of your fort that you're, you really want to be with them. But that's the exact kind of person that's, again, going to wound you. That's going to do the same thing again. That then, again, eventually, you're going to have to push them out. And you're going to say, see, I knew it. I knew it. If anyone comes in here, they're going to hurt me. You know? So it's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy, in a way, is that you're creating a certain energetic container around yourself. And then the only kind of people that are going to relate to that are the kind of people you don't want. Um, one time, I remember I was walking to a concert. I was walking down the street with a small group of people. And we're passing some school, and there's a kid approaching us. And as we approached the kid, uh, I said, hey. And I raised my hand for a high five. And he went, Ugh, like this. And he cowered, like we were going to hit him. You know? And I was like, oh, no, no, we weren't. He's like, OK, guys, OK, yeah, yeah, OK, yeah, great. You guys think, yeah, you're so big. There's all of you. You're gonna... And I was like, no, no, I was just saying hi. And he's like, yeah, yeah. You know? And he like, wouldn't believe. And he was almost starting this confrontation with us. And I was like, if we were any other group of guys, we probably would have ended up beating him up. You know, but because it was us, we were just like, OK, well, see you later. You know? And I could see that because he was so certain in his mind that we were going to try to fight him, that he was going to try to fight us, that he was creating the thing that he didn't want. 
Um, again, in relationships, partners sometimes, they're overbearing, right? Because they don't want to lose the other partner. This happens a lot, especially in like younger kids, I guess, like teenagers, right? Mm. They don't want the boyfriend or the girlfriend to go out. They don't want to get cheated, you know? So they're constantly calling, where are you? What are you doing? What's going on? And they're really kind of overbearing, which then, of course, pushes the partner away. And then the partner ends up cheating or doing something. And they then have created that result through their energy. So if we really look closely at our life, we'll see that again and again and again, through our own beliefs, through our own internal beliefs about how we are, how the world is, that we're going to keep creating the same results. And that kind of just keeps happening until you've learned the lesson, right? That there are these lessons. It's that you have to kind of learn these things and you have to correct them. And the more that you look at them, the more you see what they are and the more you say, okay, you know, and it's scary, right? It's scary to put down those walls. If you think that the world's going to hurt you, it's hard to kind of let go and to open up and to feel again. Um, and I think for really sensitive people in this world, especially, the world is a painful place to be in. Yeah, if you look around, it's painful. There's what we're doing to the world, to the environment. It's painful. You know, when you see homeless people, it's painful. When you see suffering, when you see kids... Um, on TV, you see bombings and killings and things like this. Even in our own homes, you see violence and aggression and people that are cold and neglect. And it's really painful to be a human in this planet. It really is. And I was a monk for you know eight years, so ten years, kind of doing the whole traveling and spiritual thing. And I came back here, and a lot of people have asked me, "What what's that like coming back after being in the monastery for eight years? What's it like?" And that's really something that I can say that I've noticed is that I've had to kind of start, there's a part of me, I feel, that has to, again, start numbing myself down a little bit. Because in the monastery, you're really with people, and of course, there's a lot of suffering in the monastery. Don't get me wrong. It's not like we're all like these monks sitting there like praying and we're shining light and everything's okay. There's definitely a lot of suffering in monasteries as well. But there's something about it that, at least it's somehow kind of processed a bit. It's talked about a bit. People are kind of on the same page. You know, there's at least a kind of overarching theme of spiritual like work that's happening there and movement. And, um, and when I have left and I've gone back to the world, and the world is a very kind of confused place. The people in general in the world are very confused. Everyone is doing their best to figure things out with the tools they've got, but no one really knows, you know? Um, and many people aren't working together. A lot of people are working against each other, actually. And it's really confusing, and there's a lot of pain. And even just walking into a store, you know, I come back, I just walk into a store, and you, the way that you see the parents yelling at the children, and the way you see, you just, you feel the pain of the world much more acutely when you're, I guess, in the world and not in a monastery, right? So really being in the world, I've personally been more just having to feel the pain around me. And I do my best to then use that to address situations um, and see how I can correct things. But also I see a part of it, I had to really be like, Seth, like if you feel the pain of the world all the time, like it's, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's painful, it's too much. So I had to be kind of selective. And something else about this that I wanted to bring up, um, and I posted this on my Facebook, but this was about, um, so my teacher, one of my teachers, Achim Brahm, he was a, a monk living in Thailand for a while. 
And he visited the Venerable Mahabua, who was like one of the really head kind of monks of the Thai forest tradition. And he was relating a story that said when he was a novice monk at the monastery, he had typhoid fever, so he was really sick and he was bedridden. And this is actually quite common for monks in Thailand and in Burma. So one of my really best friends, um, he was a monk in Burma for a little while and he actually got typhoid also. So it, it happens a lot that monks get really sick. And, um, you know, and you're in the middle of nowhere. There's not really necessarily doctors around. So a lot of times you just have to kind of figure out what you're going to do with that sickness. And often if you're a really good practitioner, they say, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to use this to really strengthen my practice. So, Ma, so Mahabua was sick, he had typhoid fever, he was bedridden, really weak. And he said, you know what, I'm going to really push this. I'm not going to let the sickness do I'm going to really, you know, exert willpower and go through it. So he got up and he took his broom and he's kind of staggering around and the other monks are sweeping. It's the time where they clean the monastery. So he took his broom and he kind of started sweeping and trying to sweep. And uh, the, the abbot of the monastery, Achen Mun, who was the one who really kind of reinstated the whole Thai forest tradition, he came out and he looked at him. He's like, what are you doing? Like, you're sick. Get back to bed. Are you crazy? Like, he really reprimanded him. Um, and Mahabu went back to lay down. And that night, Achen Mun had a talk. He called all the monks for a talk like this, like a talk and a meditation, and told Achen Mahabua, you have to come to this talk tonight. You know, and he came and he said to them, he said, and in your last lives, a lot of you are boxers. And when they say last lives, they mean like before you became a monk, not necessarily like last life. So he said, in your last life, a lot of you are boxers. And you're still boxers now. He said, you're still boxers now because you think the way through things is to fight. You're trying to fight your way through things, right? Mahabua he was sick and he was trying to fight it, trying to fight against it. I'm going to push through this. I'm going to push. If I try hard enough, I can push through it. And Achen Mun said, when you fight against things, you just exhaust yourself. He said, it's exhausting and there's no wisdom to be found because the ultimate form of trying to control things is fighting. That's like the ultimate form of trying to control things to get the things like you want them to be. And he said, that's not practice. He's like, that's not what a Buddhist monk does. He said, the path of a monk is to look at things and to ask why. Why is this thing like this? What is it? And when you really understand why things are the way they are, you start to get wisdom. And you start to also be able to relate to things with wisdom in a different kind of way. Shannon has a little dog. His name is Marty. It's a little white dog. And he was her friend for like you know, 10 years. So this dog was like her best friend, you know, this little girl and her dog. And so she treated her dog like it's her best friend, right? So they go in the forest and it's like Shannon and Marty out in the woods. And, you know, so really that feeling of we're on the same level and we're buddies and we're going to do this, you know. Um, and then I took him for a walk the other day. And I noticed that when I had him on the leash, you know, he'll like run away and he'll go this way. And I tried to like do something. And he's like, like he wants to bite me. And he acts like he's not the dog, he acts like he's higher than me. Right? He has this dominance thing. But also completely untrained, right? Running here, there, there, there. And I started to feel frustrated. I'm like, what is this dog doing? And then I stopped and I remembered this teaching about Mahabua and I said, you know what? Why? Why is this happening? What is this? And then I remember, okay, here's this dog who has just lived the last 10 years with somebody who really just let him do what he wanted. He feels like he's a person, kind of. He feels like he can just do whatever he wants. He doesn't have any boundaries, any rules. Yeah. So, of course, that's how he's behaving. And for me to get angry or upset, it actually only hurts me. It's not, he doesn't actually even care. Right? 
And because I started to look deep, more deeply at the situation, really understand where he's coming from, it also let me see where she was coming from in a better way. But then when we were walking, I really could just hold him on a short leash and really just say, no, no. And I felt that I was emotionally really able to be at peace with the situation while still acting accordingly, while still training him. But I didn't have any more emotional attachment. I wasn't fighting him to be different. I wasn't fighting the situation. I wasn't fighting for this dog to suddenly listen to me. I really understood. And when I understood, I was like, OK, this is actually going to take time. And I know why you're like that, and it's OK. And actually, what it is is that he feels unsafe. Because just like a child, if you don't give animals proper boundaries, they feel, uns they feel that they, he feels like he has to protect the house. Right? He feels that he has to protect himself, right? like a child. If you don't give a child proper boundaries, they actually feel unsafe. But if you're treating a dog like it's your best friend, you don't want to give it boundaries because you feel bad. Right? So you want them just to be free. But actually, animals, especially because there's such a hierarchy in animals, right? they know who's the dominant, who's the next. Like they're very clear of their boundaries. That if you don't give a, an animal boundaries, they actually feel very unsafe. And then they're always on guard. You know, so I could see this dog, and I could see how it was behaving, and I also knew for myself, when he starts learning boundaries, he'll actually be able to calm down and feel safer, and that this is also an act of love. And to set a boundary out of love versus setting a boundary because you're angry or upset are, like, completely different places. Yeah, if you've ever seen, again, like, mothers yelling at their kids at the supermarket because the kid dropped something, right? This anger and aggression and calling the kid stupid, it's like pain, it's like creating pain and shoving it down into another person versus really looking at the situation, understanding it, and saying, like, honey, you really have to be more careful because if you break things, people are going to get mad at you. You know, then we're going to have to pay for things, and that's, like, a lot for me, and that's kind of too much. And then I'm not going to want to take you out anymore. You know, so, you know, please be careful because I still want to take you with me. You know, so when you can kind of explain it, then a kid could be like, oh, okay, and right away they could change. Whereas if you're with a kid and it breaks something, you're like, what are you doing? You're stupid. You know, you start yelling at the kid. They're just going to feel horrible. They're going to get upset. You're going to get more upset. And they haven't learned anything. Nothing's changed. So recognizing that we are like children as well. In many respects, we in many respects are like animals that didn't have a good trainer. That there's a lot of parts of us, of our minds, that are so jumping all over the place that we feel restless, we feel unsafe, we feel stressed. Yeah, we don't really know what we're doing. And to really start looking clearly at our own mind, you know, and that's also, again, why meditation is so great, is because it's the only activity you do all day long that really goes directly to the mind. You're not doing anything out there. You're working just with the mind itself, which allows you to see how are you relating to the mind. If you're grabbing on your breath, you're like, ah, oh, I like to grab onto things. I like to try to control things. If you're trying to meditate and you feel like, oh, this is hopeless, you're like, oh, I, I give up really easily. You know? If you sit and you're constantly thinking about what I have to do later today, oh, okay, I'm usually in the future thinking about and worrying. You know? So it's such a pure expression of, of just kind of the habitual energy of your mind in meditation, that it's really the best place to look and see and understand yourself. Because otherwise, if you're not in here and you're outside, you're going to run with it. You're going to worry about stuff, and you're going to call people. You're going to go on your computer. You're going to be living that energy out, which keeps it spinning. 
Whereas when you sit here to meditate, it comes up and there's nowhere to go with it. So you have to really just be present with it. And again, when it comes up, don't fight it, but really ask why. Try to understand what's going on. And really just keep looking and feeling, why? What is this? You know? And slowly you start to get more wisdom, more clarity, and things start to open up. They start to unwind. Yeah? Because imagine if you could then have that same loving relationship with yourself. Right? If imagine if you understood yourself to that level, that you could be kind to yourself. That you could take it easy on yourself. You didn't put so much pressure on yourself. Because you understood yourself deeply enough that you could really allow love and gentleness and kindness into your own heart. Yeah. And the more that that energy comes in, the more all by itself your mind becomes peaceful. Your heart becomes peaceful. Because ultimately only you can let that energy in. Yeah. That only you can give yourself that. So my impulse for the meditation today, for the rest of the round, is to really take it easy on yourself and really notice when things are coming up, what is it that's coming up? So don't be so quick to try to hammer the mind in the direction you want. If you're breathing and you notice that your mind is wandering, don't be so quick to try to force it back. Really just try to be with that and to feel it. Because like I said, ultimately the breath isn't even the point. What's going to happen as you're breathing and relaxing is that you're going to start to feel peaceful. And that peacefulness is what brings the mind to stillness. It's an emotional process. Meditation, it's an emotional process. Yeah, it's a feeling process. Whatever feels relaxing, what feels peaceful, that's the direction you move in. And that's what's going to eventually let the mind feel safe, that it can really rest and let go. Okay? So why don't we get into our meditation positions? <laughs> 